Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Here we are, episode 102. Kind of crazy, but Mark Ellison is my guest today. Mark Ellison is a carpenter in New York. He's been doing that for 40 plus years, and he's got a new book out. First time author. The book is called Building A Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of Good Work. If you've been listening to the show at all, you know that this book is right up my alley, and uh, this conversation ended up being right up my alley. Truth is, I had no idea who Mark Ellison was. Um, Random House, his publisher, emailed me, and uh, they, they sent me a copy of his book and said, would you have an interest in talking to Mark? The book sounded intriguing. I read it. I enjoyed it very much. I said, sure, let's chat. But the interesting thing with Mark is like, there's not a lot of other media out there that he exists in. He did have a profile in The New Yorker, which kind of kicked off his whole public persona. And and he talks about that. There's a long profile written of him and his work a few years ago. But other than that, like, there's not a lot of TV interviews. He told me at the end of this show that this was the first podcast that he'd ever recorded. So that was kind of interesting. I'm glad I didn't know that (laughs) going in, I think. But yeah, this is the first time he's ever done a podcast. So I just I had no idea, like, was he going to be the most droll and dry carpenter in the world? Or was he going to be, you know, exuberant and a great storyteller? And I got a sense from the book that he'd be the latter. But, you know, I'll let you listen and let you decide. But it was like, as soon as I picked up this book, I knew I would click with Mark. Just his philosophy on life is is so aligned with mine. And he's just an interesting guy. I mean, I think what I like most about him is he's a carpenter and an amazingly talented one. He works on very, very high-end residential projects in New York City for like the richest of the rich, doing crazy custom millwork installations and beautiful custom closets and cabinetry and all this kind of stuff. But he's not just a carpenter. You'll hear in this interview, a lot of the thread of this conversation is around music We come back to it a lot, and it's something that Mark has been doing just as a hobby for most of his life. And I love that he brings his skill set, his mentality, his ideas as a musician into his trade. And I love that he's willing to learn from anybody and anything. I mean, he he talks in the book, and we'll talk in the interview, about just like watching a a short-order cook in in a diner in New York and learning from how that guy operated. That made him a better carpenter. I love that kind of stuff. Like I've been in in jobs before where you you want to just take some time and say, I want to go learn from this person that has nothing to do with my job, but I know it's going to make me better at my job. And that's a hard sell for a lot of people. Like I've had bosses that are like, wait, you, you want to go do what? That That doesn't make sense. Your job is this. Go do this. But Mark gets it. And I love that. He gets that a short order cook can teach you everything you need to know about carpentry or being a great musician, can teach you everything you need to know about carpentry. And it's not a direct one-for-one lesson, but it's about mentality. It's about mindset. It's about how you move in a space. It's about how you organize yourself. All these things. And I guess maybe the, the bigger lesson here is that like that can be the same across a lot of industries. And you can get a lesson from wherever you want to find it. So yeah, I, I really like the book, Building a Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of Good Work. I'm honored that I am the first podcast that, that Mark spoke to, and uh, I think it went pretty well. I'll let you be the judge of that. 
And I got to just say too, like, I appreciate you taking a chance on listening to this interview because I know like I've had some, some very big names on here in the last couple of weeks, Nick Offerman, two episodes ago, Ben Napier last time. You see this name, Mark Ellison, you don't know it. I didn't know it until three, four weeks ago. I appreciate you clicking on this podcast and I think you're going to get something out of this. I hope you're going to get 10 things out of it, frankly, because I got 10, 20, 30 out of the book, out of the conversation. It's incredible. So I think it's fitting that this conversation starts with music, gets into carpentry, gets into authors, goes back to music, goes back to carpentry. We talk about it all and uh, we had a good time. So here it is, my conversation with Mark Ellison. I mean, I actually just spent the last three days in a recording studio working on my second album. So uh, my fingers literally like ache this morning from playing guitar for 30 hours for the last three days. Oh, so uh, yeah, by the last three notes, I was like, man, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I was like, Don't make me play anymore. <laughs> it's like playing a cheese grater. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a workout. It was a workout. The people I'm working with are just world-class musicians. And there's, I can't say enough about them or the process. What genre is it? I mean, people would call it Americana, but I don't think, if one were to listen to an entire album, they would go, ooh, that was a lovely little banjo album. Yeah, yeah. It's broad. I mean, I my taste in music runs from, really from the 1930s up to, it, it, it stops at 1974, which is when the Grand Old Opry left Ryman Auditorium. And as far as I'm concerned, music kind of ended in 1974 in this country. But Interesting. Yeah, one shouldn't say that on a podcast. There'd be so <laughs> many objections. I'd have to like, it's been the rest of my life feeling objections to that statement. I was, I was thinking through when you said 1974, I'm like, is that, that's not disco. That's early for disco. Like what's the demarcation? That's the, do, so do you consider when they go to Ryman in the summer, is that legit for you? Like, cause they're right. It, it's the summer season that they're I adore the Ryman. I, yeah. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been to the Ryman several times. I adore the Ryman. But I mean, it, that theater had to be saved. The, the Grand Old Opry abandoned it in 1974. Yeah. And um, built a new place. And then they and they essentially fired all the house musicians. And they fired all the old Nashville cats. And all those people who played on so hundreds of albums. Sure, for years yeah. And years and years. Were all put out to pasture. And country music took a very strong turn towards pop music. Sure. And you can pretty much place it right there at that juncture. And ever since there've been, I mean, there are a few people that come along every once in a while. I'm like, wow, you know, like Sturgill Simpson or somebody like that who, who I say, wow, they 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 kind of they kind of got it going on. Yeah. And when Dwight Yoakam was doing his stuff with uh, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, uh, oh, Buck Owens, the Buckaroos weren't around, but uh, I took to that strongly. I mean, he played with Flocka Jimenez, and he had such, Pete Anderson's the most incredible guitar player. Anyway, I could go on for hours. We were on the wrong topic. Uh, we we are, but I might. Do you mind if I use some of that? I liked. <laughs> I liked all that. Absolutely not. I mean, okay. as I'm sure you've learned from other authors, I wrote the book two years ago. Yeah, and I have four or five projects going now. Some are professional, some are art, some are music, some yeah. are different projects. And I'm deep, deep, deep in my other projects now. And now. I remember May 16th, the day the book came out, you know, my publisher called me up and goes, oh, congratulations. My agent called me up and like, congratulations, it's a big day. I was sitting in the middle of a project in Brooklyn that I have the owners are moving in next month. Yeah. You know, 30 men and women working, putting the place together, trying to get it in shape for the move-in. Right. I'm in the middle of recording my second album. I've got a whole nother vanity art piece I'm working on that'll 
that's coming out in October. And um, I was kind of, my response was of the ilk of which book? Oh, yeah, the book, you know. <laughs> that one that I wrote. I remember that. Yeah, that book I wrote by accident. <laughs> well, I guess let's start there because I'm curious sort of just where the origin for this came from. I mean, I guess it, you sort of talked about just all the different creative pursuits you have, but in reading it, it's it's mostly focused on your carpentry work. And I don't often think of carpenters as as being authors. Like, what was that transition like for you to to tell your story? Well, it wasn't it wasn't intentional. I talk about it in the book. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's ever met me who thought I would wind up being a published author, yeah. including myself. It, it wasn't something I ever can really can. I, people have said, you tell stories, you're funny to talk to, you, you're, you've had such epic stories in your career. Yeah. You should write a book. That kind of offhanded, like, oh, you should do that, but not really, yeah, like, I would buy that said. book. Yeah. The woman I dedicated the book to, who was my right-hand woman for years and years and years, would always say, you should write a book. It's so funny, and the things we've done are so crazy, and people should know about this. Right. And my answer was always like, you know, when? I mean, we're running a project now. We have another project coming up. I have all these side gigs going on. When? And also, I don't like to write. <laughs> it's not something I do. I've never written anything. Yeah. I didn't get through high school because I didn't write term papers. And, right. And uh, I was in trouble for not writing, and specifically. Yeah. And then uh, there was that article that came out, much to my dismay, in The New Yorker about me. And that came out in a very unasked for fashion. Yeah. He, but why do you say to your dismay? Like, what did you not like about it? It's not that I didn't like it. It's more that I, it was, you know, listen, I've built, I've been building for 40 years. Probably 75% of what I build is published in a magazine or there's a feature on it or a news piece on it or something. Yeah. And um, my name has never been mentioned in print. Hmm. In, in any of those articles ever. The builders are almost never mentioned at all. Yeah. I mean, one would think that the architects and the owners got together somehow, put on some overalls and built the place themselves. Right. Based on the articles you read in Architectural Digest. I always thought that, that people should be disabused of that notion because that's right. not how it happens. And um, the people that do it are a much different set than the people that design it and the people that, that you know, pay for it. Right. So... I mean, the only reason it's it's not it's it's more dismay in that I have lived my entire life under the radar uh -huh. until recently. I never had a website. I don't do social media. I right. don't. You can't find my telephone number online, and I wasn't looking for clients. I don't do advertising, and the idea of going public was the part that dismayed me. Hmm. Like doing something in the public eye for the public. Because it's just never how I've lived my life, and it's nothing I've ever sought. Right. When Burkhardt Bilger from New Yorker called me, I was actually, he called me, I was in the middle of my job site, there was 30 people there working, yeah. and there's all this noise, and he said, I, 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 a friend of mine told me that in New York City, you're the guy, you know, if, I, if, if we want something crazy built, you're the guy. Yeah. He told me he worked for a magazine, and he wanted to do a feature article. I thought he said the name of a different magazine. Okay. And I was... You know, my response was, uh, honestly, who cares? I'm busy. Right. But he was, <laughs> he was pushy and, uh, and he was willing to come to the neighborhood for a drink that night. So we had a drink 
And then he told me that he wanted to write a feature article for the New Yorker. Uh And just him saying that was like, Oh God, like, like that's way above the radar. I mean, that's like way above the radar. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not how I live. And that's not what I'm interested in. So that was the part that dismayed me. The strangest part about all of this is that I'm being pulled above the radar I mean, even now, you and I talking is pulling me above the radar. Sure, and it's and I'm not I'm not sure it's it's not something I I actually care about or have sought, but I can understand the value of it. I can understand that I think I actually have a few things to say. Yeah, and it doesn't bother me so much to say them in front of people anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting too. I mean, we're talking about like your origins as a writer and like not enjoying that craft, like it's a beautifully written book and and beautifully constructed. And like, what I like about it is I think sometimes when you hear, I'm going to write a memoir or you read a memoir, it's just like a chronological series of dates of like, this happened, then this happened. I got this job. Then this person called me. I did this job, you know, but yours, like you kind of weave a lot of uh, philosophy into it and, you know, bigger ideas that like it's, had you not said in there, that you didn't finish high school and, and had a GED, like I would have thought that you had an Ivy League education. It, it's almost like a hidden talent <laughs> that you're displaying, I guess. Like you say you don't like it, but you're really, really good at it. Yeah, I guess I, 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 the thing is, I didn't know that. Yeah. After the article came out in the New Yorker, a literary agent called me up and she asked, her name is Lauren Sharp, and she's, I adore Lauren Sharp. Yeah. I, didn't when she first called, but I do adore her now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she said she had called Burkhardt because she couldn't find my telephone number anywhere. <laughs> and, and would I be interested in writing a memoir? Uh-huh. And my answer to that was no. Like, who cares? Yeah. I mean, who cares? It's my life. Is I'm sure there's some interesting highlights, but who cares? Right. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I did this. I did that. I went to college. Didn't go to college. Dropped out of this. Did that. It to me isn't very interesting or even very instructive or helpful for anybody to read that. Yeah. So I, I spoke to several friends about it, two of whom were writers, and they both encouraged me to kind of yes her to death and say, sure, I'll write a memoir and then write whatever you want. So what I did was I wrote whatever I wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and these are these are ideas I'm very interested in. You know, like say the chapter on talent. I think people are have a lot of misconceptions about talent. How does one develop an extraordinary ability? How does someone, you know, how did Yitzhak Perlman learn how to play the the violin? I mean, he practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Right. Sure, maybe he had a particularly large dose of finger dexterity serotonin or whatever the heck makes your fingers go fast, which I don't, but that's how people become wonderful at things. And, and that's how people do it. It's uh, through, through tireless practice. I mean, that's why I wrote about Mozart in the book, but Mozart, Mozart's father was one of the greatest violin teachers of his generation and forced the kid to play from the time he, he was tall enough to sit at a stool at the keyboard. Right. And that kid had, I mean, they, people talk about the 10,000 hours and Mozart had 10,000 hours by the time he was seven. Right. 
<laughs> but but you also say about talent, like I love this. You say if if one is not immediately good at something, it's not worth doing. Like that's a common misconception, and and you wanted to disabuse people. I think I that. call that one of the stupidest ideas in the world. Yeah, the right. It's a terribly stupid because it also people get discouraged. I actually just spoke to someone today whose nephew is a carpenter, went to carpentry school, went to craft school in England. Yeah, he's been at it for two years. And he's starting to think, well, I don't know if carpentry is really for me. I mean, two years as a carpenter, you, you're not a carpenter. I mean, I used to cheat and call myself a carpenter as so I get hired. Sure. But, but it takes 10 years to be useful, yeah. 15 years to be good, right. and 20 years to be competent at it. <laughs> as much as people might not like that message, because people do have to live through their 20s, right. that's the way it is. You know, it's just the way it is. Some people get a really early start, and they get 10 or 15 years in before they're, you know, 20 years old. That's a rare case. People think that talent is something that's born in you. One person is destined to be this. One person is destined to be that. Yeah, I, It's just an upsetting notion to me because I don't know about destiny. I don't know what destiny means, but I do know that people can make of themselves what they want to make of themselves. I mean, I'll never be a midget wrestler right? and I'll never be a ballerina. Yeah. But I can dance pretty well and I've taken dancing lessons and I can cut a rug and and you know, look charming on a dance floor at <laughs> 280 pounds. Yeah. But you also, you make a distinction, I guess, between like doing things professionally and doing things for the heck of it. Like you're talking about with dancing and stuff like this quote. I love too. I, I wrote this down. Interesting people are interesting because they have interests, interests they often pursue because they find them interesting. Like, I love that of just like, why not dance? Why not play the banjo? Why not do what you like? Right. I mean, I do dance and play the banjo. So <laughs> right. I so I can't quibble with anything you've but, just But you said. don't necessarily pay the bills with those, right? Like you're, you pay the bills as a carpenter and then do all this other stuff because you love it, right? No. In fact, I mean, I've many of the things I've pursued in my adult life, you know, I had to pay for lessons. I had to pay for classes. I had to, sure. I had to pay teachers. I had to buy instruments. I had to buy all the materials myself and I, there's almost nothing I've pursued as I mean, including like I did Chinese Kung Fu for uh, more than a decade. And I, had to, you know, I, I had to pay for every class and pay for everything, buy my uniform. Yeah, sure. But it was such a beautiful and interesting pursuit that it would bother me if I hadn't done it. Yeah. You know, because I always was interested. I always thought it was so neat. I used to watch Kung Fu movies when I was a kid. Right, right. And then to actually learn what they're doing. Why? And actually find out that the movies are kind of nonsense and there's actually a real Kung Fu to learn behind the Kung Fu that has more of a purpose, more of a history yeah. and really more beauty to it than what you see on the screen. I didn't know that until I found out. Right. It, and it took me 10 to 12 years before Chinese Kung Fu made much sense to me. Right. To Before I started to understand the things that were being talked about. Well, I'm curious, too, because I feel like some of those things you can choose to pursue like just for the hell of it and not sure where they're going to end up. But then it kind of bleeds into your work too. You know, you wrote, there's a, a profile in, in the book about uh, Orlando, who's a short order cook uh, at a restaurant on the Lower East Side that you just, yeah. you loved watching him and watching his movements and sort of how efficient he was in the kitchen. And like, I, I think for a lot of people, that wouldn't be a traditional teacher of like, oh, as a carpenter, I should be learning from a short order cook or I should be bringing Kung Fu into my carpentry. But like, just when you do these outside things, like they end up having an effect on your work too, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, I really do think of it as practice and training. Yeah. I've trained a lot of different parts of myself. I mean, to me, I mean, if I were to be specific about it, Kung Fu has trained my body in a way to learn and Tai Chi and boxing in a way that the principles of those emphasize relaxation and fluid movement. The power from Kung Fu doesn't come from being strong and muscled. It comes right. from the relaxation of the of the movement and, and also the structure of the movement. Those guys can't hit so freaking hard because they're big muscled dudes. They hit so hard because their bodies are struck. They use the structure of their body to its greatest advantage. Mm. I mean, Orlando was one of the first examples when I could see it so clearly. I used to go and watch. It was Christine's restaurant in New York City on... Um, I can't remember which avenue. I think it's First Avenue. Okay. That place was two huge rooms and he fed everybody. Yeah. And it was like watching somebody do the ballet or going to the circus. And and he did it all offhand. I mean, if he could have had a cigarette dangling out of his mouth, he would have. (laughs) I mean, it was completely offhand, barely said a word. Yeah. And magically the whole place got done. His griddle, his grill was always clean. All the condiments and stuff were all set up, prepped all the time. Yeah. A hundred people ate breakfast in an hour because of this man. Yeah. And that was remarkable to me. For years and years and years, I've tried to bring that kind of fluidity into my, when I work in the shop to do things in an efficient way with solid posture and a relaxed body and a relaxed mind and not let my brains get in my way of the work. And that's when I work physically. That's how I work. And it's due to those trainings. I mean, yeah. directly. Right. Well, I mean, you could go on. I mean, music, there's nothing in the world like music to train your heart and to train your emotions. It's, yeah. there's, it's, it's the most, I think, as, in terms of human expression, it's probably the most emotionally compressed form of human expression there is. Mm. I, I actually always feel bad when people tell me that they're not musical or they can't sing or they can't, they, they wish they'd taken lessons. I, even as I think it's a wonderful thing to pursue it as an adult. I mean, I'm 61 and I play every day. Yeah. And I actually, and I specifically play because of what it does for my, for my hearts and my, and my feelings and uh, how it makes me feel. Yeah. Not so much, not as, it's a physical thing too, but the emphasis of it is emotional. Yeah. Well, I guess I hadn't thought about that until you were saying it of just, there is the physical act of, of holding the instrument or singing or, you know, whatever it is. There's there's the intellectual piece of it of reading the music or the lyrics or whatever, and there is the emotional piece. Like it really is, music is kind of engaging every part of your being. I mean, the guys the, the guys that take the MRIs and the PET scans and the, the the people who do they do the ones like the ones where they can actually watch the PET scan. While oh somebody, right, yeah, the brain waves and whatever. Nothing and, uh, fires it like music does, and they can actually tell someone who's a musician from someone who's not a musician. When they do look at the pet scans, because the musician, the non-musicians' brains fire, yeah, the, the but the more actively than they usually do, the musicians' right. brains go berserk. It's like mm. it's like it fires in all kinds of centers all around the brain. That one of the reasons I talk about music a bit in the book is because it's 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 to me it's probably the most important thing I do. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I do want to shift gears though and talk a little bit about carpentry because obviously that is kind of the, the main focus of the book. And <laughs> what what, uh, what stood out to me, like kind of the, the biggest takeaway in reading the book was just it, most of your projects have been at the, the highest of the high end. I mean, like the not even the 1%, like the 0.0001% of Yeah, of in, the last 25, in the last 25 years, yes, that's yeah. true. And like the the thing that I take away from that is just this realization that like the uber rich 
they're they're not like you and me <laughs> in terms of how they build in terms of just their conception of home like i'm curious sort of and obviously you talk about it in the book but like for the sake of people listening that that haven't read it yet like what were kind of some of your takeaways of of working on these these crazy high end projects i don't people should know i don't mention names in the book because i didn't want it to be an exposé of the life of the super rich sure. i really didn't want it to be that and and quite frankly, from what I can tell, super rich people are more or less the same as every other group of people in that some of them are lovely, some of them are meh, and some of them are downright awful. Yeah. The problem is that when you have a whole lot of money, when you're lovely, you can be really, really, really lovely and do wonderful things in the world. Yeah. When you're meh, you can be really meh and kind of just do your own thing. And when you're awful, you can be really Really, really awful. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget. I was standing in a huge, it was called an entertainment room, but it was 35 feet long and 20 feet wide and had 16 foot ceilings. And we were in the, we were putting up English brown oak hand carved Corinthian pilasters against the wall with a 16 piece crown molding with all these wow. little brackets and stuff like that. Yeah. And, I was awake. We were working double shifts. And I think it was about two o'clock in the morning. And the owner came down and he was working. Yeah. And uh, English brown oak is um, a wood that at that point, there was almost none left in the country and very little left in the world. And there was an embargo on importing it. Yeah. And it was a nightmare for the company I worked for to even find enough wood to build that room. It was yeah. an enormous room. They found some of it, uh, I think it was the, the Boston Public Library had a stash in their basement that had been there a hundred years that we mined and wow. took. Yeah. The client came in and I was standing up on the scaffold. He knew about the wood, but he goes like, what's that wood called again? And I said, that's that's uh, English brown oak. And he had, the big, he had a big cigar. He was actually in his bathroom. And that was it. Yeah. He goes, tell me, what's special about that wood again? And I told him what I just <laughs> told you. I was like... Yeah. There's, there's, there was only enough of it left in the world to do this room. You, this is probably the last great English brown oak room that will be built in the world. Yeah. And he looked, he took a puff of his cigar and he leaned back and he goes, that's great. <laughs> you, dude, you just shot the last white tiger. I yeah. mean, and you think it's great. Not yeah. everybody else thinks that's great. Yeah. But for him, that was. Oh my God, I have something no and I and I, I don't know that this is what motivates rich people all the time, but for some but some people having the one and the only and the and you know this is true from the art they purchase, from sure. the from the way they furnish things with custom furniture, from the schools they send their children to, having the one and the only and the last, and no one else can have it is apparently quite delicious. Yeah. To, some people. Well, you talk about like building like a custom, I think it was a closet or a dressing room or something too, along the same lines that like crazy high end custom millwork and then getting word that the client didn't like it and having it all torn out. And just like th there was a story in the book too about a garage being demolished because the owner flew by in his helicopter and didn't, and like, didn't the way like, it. like, yeah, like it, it wasn't even like walking around. It was literally from the helicopter. Like just, so he had, he'd only seen it from the sky. Yeah. And, and just kind of the, like, on the one hand, like you say, it's, it's shooting the white tiger, but it's also completely disposable. And like, just for you, as as somebody who I gather from from your work and and in talking to you, care about things. <laughs> like, how do you how do you divorce yourself from 
any emotion, I guess, of like you build this beautiful thing and then it has to be torn out. Well, I mean, that that one was a tough one because that was actually probably the most beautiful. It was a, it wasn't even a big room. It was yeah. just perfect. It was so gorgeous. The main wood was pear wood, which is this beautiful iridescent wood that has this depth to it that almost no other wood has. And I mean, the, the hardware was uh, uh, all plated in 24 karat gold. Wow. And, you know, an antique etched mirrors. And it sounds gaudy, but the way this room was done, and I did not design the room. It was just kind of perfect. Yeah. And that one hurt. I mean, I remember somebody coming into that room while I was building it and he wanted, he tried to put his tool bag on a shelf and I almost tore his head off. I was, I was like, do not touch my, this is, you know, do not touch my room. This is my room. <laughs> yeah. Who the hell do you think you're up and tool? like, you know, like, like, uh, like I lost it. And I, the man supervising the job I had to intervene. I was so mad. Wow. But I mean, on the other hand, this is my profession. I do this for money. Sure. And I don't build for myself. And I also don't, I, I'm not the designer and I'm not the, everything I ever build, whoever I'm building it for, it's theirs. Yeah. And they can do with it what they wish. And they do believe me. <laughs> Most of it's in the dumpster right now. I yeah. mean, uh, I don't really consider this my art. Yeah. This is, this is my craft. Okay. And this is my profession. And this is how I make my living and how I fed my kids and send to school and things like that. Yeah. But it's not, to me, this is not my art. I take it very, very seriously, but it's not my art. Yeah. And uh, and I'm just reaching the age where I'm beginning to figure out what my art might be. This is my craft. It's a profession. It's how I make a living. I, I put an awful lot of energy and time and pain and blood and sweat into it over the years. Yeah. But I can let it go. It's it's somebody else's creation that I'm realizing. It's like somebody else designs the suit and I'm the tailor that fits it to the client or to mm. the job, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Like, to me, I would think of craft and art as synonyms or that they could be synonyms. Like, that distinction, it's a subtle distinction, I guess, that you're making there. But I'm, I'm like, I want to dive into that a little more, I guess, of just... How do you define craft versus art, I guess? I, well, I, I don't see them. I, I mean, I, I would actually agree with you that they're not necessarily distinct. Yeah. Here's how I, I would say what I'm, I would sort of re-say what I just said. My craft, I mean, I have this rather remarkable set of skills that I've put together through various practices for, year, for four decades. Yeah. And so I can do things with my hands that a lot of people can't do. Right. And a lot of that intelligence, as far as I can tell, is kind of in my hand. I mean, in the way that a musician doesn't, you don't tell your fingers where to go. Right. They go there once you've learned how to really play an instrument. Yeah. I couldn't tell you how that finger got to do that. Yeah. And that's the craft or the technique of playing. But then there's artistry, which is, and which to me is more of a matter of intent mm. and a more of a matter of what are you trying to communicate? This book and some of the other things I'm doing now are my first efforts to think about what it is that I've learned and what I and what I love and what I know in my life that I might want to share and communicate and transmit to other people as much as anything to encourage them to find those things in their lives so that they can find the things they truly love and they really want to do and that really bring them fulfillment. Because those to me are the things that are the most fulfilling is if, if you really find something that grabs your heart and then you can put your craft to it, you can bring your, so I'm not saying a chair can't be art. There's certainly chairs that are a piece of art, Sure, but there are also 
superbly crafted chairs, but really that wasn't the intention at all. It was yeah. really just made so that the king would look kind of snappy when he was right. sitting on, you know, on the dais. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh, even kind of that framing, you know, I, I, I think of what you do to some extent of, and I think you make comparisons in the book to kind of, the old, like, you know, the Medici and, and like these old uh, European, you know, elites uh, that would hire out Michelangelo and all these people to to build out things for them. And that's interesting that like we go into the Sistine Chapel and we say, oh, that's art. But like, what was the intent behind it? I don't know. Read Michelangelo's letters about how he felt about painting the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. And you get a pretty good picture into it. I haven't read them. I don't know. Michelangelo was, you know, like, the consummate craftsman. I mean, I don't know how you, I mean, even to say craftsman is a little lowly. Sure. But Michelangelo thought of himself and, and, and his heart lay in sculpting. He didn't like painting very much. Yeah. But, you know, when the Pope tells you to paint the damn ceiling, <laughs> <laughs> any guy's got to make a living. I mean, right. Michelangelo can't live on marble chips. Right. So, uh, so, so when the Pope says, well, you know, Mike, you got to paint the ceiling. And yeah. It's like, I hate painting ceilings. I mean, that's essentially how it goes. The letters are like, but I hate painting ceilings. Screw you and your ceiling painting. He's like, yeah, you want to eat? Yeah. Okay, I'll paint the ceiling. I mean, right, that's right. how the story goes. And we wind up with the Sistine Chapel because Michelangelo can't help himself. By that time and by that age, art imbues everything he does. Yeah. We would be mistaken to think that it doesn't find its way in there. Right. But for him, it was a pain in the ass and it was a craft job he did for the buck. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so that's the difference. Like to me, there are jobs that I've built in places. There's one in the book I write about that, like the the one early on that's all the same. The whole place was made in, in Macintosh putty color. Oh, right, yep. That was the most horrifyingly ugly interior I think I've ever been in in my life. Yeah, except for like a you know a mausoleum or something. And yeah. um, the gentleman whose home that was came to each of us, which rarely happens. Came to each of us at the end of the project and said. You are artists, and what you what you're doing is art. Yeah. So in his eyes, we did art. Yeah. In our eyes, we were craftsmen making money. Yeah. And we had created an abomination. Right. So it's kind of in the eyes of the beholder a bit, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, it gets back to that point of intent. Um, I'm I'm curious too. Just like in that high end world, there are these homes that are built to last, and that are you know these really high end craftspeople making beautiful work. But you also talk about there's a townhouse in Greenwich Village that had you guys came in and it had been previously renovated, and there were just all these problems with it: air conditioning ducts that led nowhere, a roof that was installed uh, in reverse, uh, a load bearing wall that had been replaced by metal studs and was carrying four or five stories on on little yeah. metal studs that are meant to hold drywall. Like yeah. this was somebody clearly of means that had done this renovation before and had thought they were yeah, getting a very noted architect oversaw the work. Yeah. Like, I mean, this, this isn't some fly by night. Like I, I went to a home Depot parking lot and, and threw some guys in my pickup truck. This is like, I, somebody paid money for this. Like it, to me, it, it feels like a, uh, a cautionary tale of like, if I'm going to hire somebody for my house, how do I know what level work I'm getting? And I wonder like, just in your experience, sort of how should people be judging the work that they're seeing or, or getting a sense of, of who they're hiring before they come in. I mean, really the way to know, I would speak to other owners who had had that builder work for them. And I might even go off of whatever list the contractor gave me a little bit and try and find some people that weren't on his list. Yeah. And 
try and find some people who had had a builder build for them and ask what their experience was with that builder. Yeah. Because there are some in, in New York, there are wonderful, wonderful, but there's really terrific builders. There's crazy work going on all the time in sure. New York and yeah. really demanding things that are off the hook in terms of, you know, architectural like exuberance. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And that work happens all the time in New York. That's why I'm here. But there are also just as many who, who claim they can do it. And they frankly can't. I mean, this, this business takes a lot of skill. It takes yeah. an awful lot of skill. And it takes not just my job site. There are a hundred skilled people involved in putting together this project. And I, as the person in charge, have to be able to speak 25 different trade languages to sure. know what, what to ask of them and how to put it together. And what do they need? What do I need to provide for them to make their work simpler? And the more complex the job, the more ridiculous that my position becomes. Yeah. It's not something everybody can do. I know lovely craftspeople and, and carpenters and builders who have, who work out of their garage upstate. Yeah. They can make me, you know, a handcrafted portico for a, a, they can't make all the cabinets in the place, but they could make me the portico and right. the balustrade and things like that. I know one guy, all he ever did was make handrails. Because that's a really tricky thing to do when you start building elliptical staircases and stuff. The handrail becomes a real piece of something. Sure. But you just really have to talk to people who've had them work for them. Because it, the experience of having somebody build your house, I think, is second only to divorce is like the thing that like causes the most depression and ruins the most marriages. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I could understand why it's a huge it's a huge undertaking. Yeah, it's and it's expensive and it's it's stressful and it's dirty and it's uh, it's dangerous and uh, I, I if I were to find a builder for myself I would make damn well sure that I spoke to several people that they had worked for I mean yeah. even when I'm looking for subcontractors on my job I make damn well sure I've spoken to somebody who they'd done work for and not just how is their work but how do they handle it. Really, can can they write an invoice? Do yeah. they know how to manage their business and their schedule so that when they say they're going to come, they come? I mean, there's so many aspects to it that you need to look for, and you have to decide what you're willing to live with and what you're not willing to live with. Yeah. And the cheaper the cheaper somebody is, probably those of us in the business who know we know what we're doing, we also know we're few and far between, and we are allowed to charge money for what we do. Yeah, it's a special service, right? For sure, and and I think people. People get that and they know what you're getting or what they're getting at that price point then. Yeah, I think if you ask any of my previous clients, do they have a problem paying me what they paid me? They'd be like, no, we were really glad he was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask too, like you talk about all the specialty trades and stuff. And there was a point in the book where you said that traditional home construction was the domain of carpenters and masons. And they kind of had to be generalists. There, were, there weren't, you know, AC ducts. There wasn't wiring. There wasn't plumbing. Like a house was either wood or brick and it was made to keep you safe and sheltered and warm. Like I yeah. wonder just, I, I suspect in, in your time in the business, you've seen that move from kind of generalist to specialist and like, Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is that? What has that looked like where it goes from, you know, somebody could, could be installing tile one day and wood floors the next and maybe they were framing up a wall a month ago to like this is the framing crew this is the tile guy this is the whatever like everything is very discreet now and i wonder what you think of that in terms of just a building model i guess i actually think it's kind of sad because 
people who might be able to pick up a lot of things and learn a lot of things get tucked into one corner. I mean, if I had to only hang drywall for the rest of my life, I would find a high bridge somewhere, <laughs> you know, and a bottle yeah. of whiskey and see if I could, you know, see what's at the bottom of the bridge. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think people in general, workers throughout all levels of manufacturing and society would kind of say the same thing. Because who wants to be the guy that just turns the bolt on the engine block? It's, right. I mean, it's a horrible existence and, and so unfulfilling. And I think when people were more generalists, well, first off, they could charge more. Yeah. And they were more valuable. They were also more fulfilled and not bored. You know, what it's, to me, it's exciting to one day you're digging, the next day you're doing masonry, the next day you're doing this, the next day you're doing that. But what really has killed it quite frankly, is the modern corporate structure of construction companies and the insurance industry. Mm. Because general contractors insurance is so expensive that it actually, in the old days, you'd have a sizable crew that worked for the general contractor. Yeah. These days, nobody wants to pay all the comp and disability and, and all the insurances that go along. You also don't want to show that you're, that much money came through your books. Mm. Because your insurance goes haywire and you can't even afford to be in business anymore. You're basically working for the insurance company. Yeah. And it's sad that that's the case. And that's largely what drove it. But it's also some of the things that have happened in unions and and unionization is the unions actually force people into specific corners. The unions do not allow for a generalization. If you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter. You do not touch the electrical wires. If you're an electrical electrician, you touch that. You do not touch the table saw. Right. It's it's forces outside of the process of building that have forced the industry into these compartmentalized things. And I, I, I find it kind of sad. I mean, but on the other hand, things have gotten very complicated. Like, you really don't want me to wire your low voltage system. I'm the wrong guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's it's hard to find that balance, I think, between because from what I know of, of the building industry, like you also lose the sense of a big picture where like where you're that one person coming in to do that one job. You don't necessarily understand, like if a plumber is going to cut a hole through a beam to run a pipe through, they've got to get their pipe from point A to point B. Yeah. And they're not thinking about the structural integrity of the building or whatever it is, you know, like that's, they are not, but if they had the big picture, like a generalist would that says, okay, I know I put these studs in this wall. I did this intentionally, you know, because I'm going to screw myself two months later down the job if I don't do it this way, right? Like, whereas if everyone's yeah. doing their discrete piece, it's it's every man for himself, kind of. Well, that, that, I mean, what you're describing is essentially is largely what's happened. I think it's also important to say where we're talking about because there are plenty of people that that are contractors on suburban houses out in Jersey or wherever, sure, and, yeah. uh, and they do on a smaller scale like that. You can kind of hire a general guy and a handyman who's a jack of all trades who can kind of do everything in your house because you don't have a Creston controlled low voltage lighting system. And you true. don't have yeah. HVAC that, you know, has modulated <laughs> motors and does all that. Yeah. It's in the higher end stuff where it's, it really does start to get pretty complex and you really should. Like I've tried to do a job with an electrical company that wasn't well versed in the, I got stuck with one. I inherited them from a previous contractor. Yeah. I tried, we tried like hell to get those guys to do the lighting system and yeah. it was hopeless. So it, it depends also what level you're talking. There are plenty of guys out in the country and in the suburbs and even in cities 
who work at a level where like, sure, I can paint your house. I can do the thing. I can do that. But in, in my end of the business, I'm telling you, I have had paint jobs where at the end of the job, the architect comes along, he had a 500 watt halogen battery powered handheld light. Yeah. And he walked over every surface on the entire thing. Wow. And that's a different level of painting a house yeah. than I need the closet paint. You know right. what I mean? You it's, have to uh, be that specialty painter to get to that you, point. And the you prep better, work and the, yeah, you yeah. better practice your, your knife work and right. your sanding and you better, you know, and your brush work. And that, I've had people tell me something was unacceptable because they could see the brush marks on the mill, on the, on the trim. Yeah. You go like, oh, okay, and you just go back and sand it all off and do it in a way that doesn't show any brush marks. I mean, the standards that we get held to, I mean, sometimes they don't even make any sense. I've had people tell me something was wrong with something and I couldn't see the thing they were talking about. Yeah. I mean, I had one client call me one time in a tiz uh, because she was a psychiatrist and she couldn't treat her patients because the paint job was far below her standard. And I walked in there to find, ask what was going on. And she pointed me at the windowsill that there were spots and I walked over and there were three dead flies on the windowsill. I was like, these, I was like, these, <laughs> these, these spots. <laughs> I mean, we work for an eccentric bunch. I mean, that's yeah. where the Uber rich, that's where the Uber rich comes back into it. Sure. They kind of, there's not necessarily a rationale to the level of what they're after. Yeah. And I never use the word perfection in front of a rich person or right. perfect in front of a rich person because they will hold you to that word for the rest of your life. And there is no perfect. Right. I have done some beautiful, fabulous museum quality jobs. And I will never say that there's, I have never done a perfect job. And it looks like I never will. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. expect to die. I've never done a perfect job. Well, you know, kind of, and you wrote about this kind of, you know, where the imperfections are, you know, you know, the shortcuts you've taken. I, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but just there are things no. you've had to do to, to make it fit or to, you know, like oh, yeah. stuff happening behind the scenes that people don't understand. Yeah. I mean, most of the, most of the things it's funny because I see this to friends all the time. I think of every job I ever did as a collection of mistakes. Yeah. What I really remember about every job I ever did is the mistakes. I can tell you light switches that aren't placed properly by the service entrance. There's one that drives me nuts <laughs> from that huge place, from that one project I described in the book where about the blue tape all over everywhere. Where the yeah, yeah. all the different tape. imperfections were marked. They put blue yeah. tape all over the wall and I couldn't find the flaw. Yeah. But in my mind, there is, I shouldn't say this in case the owner's listening, there's one <laughs> outlet in the kitchen. It's not even in the kitchen. It's past the kitchen, past the storage closet on the way to the outdoor, the elevator hallway. Yeah. There's one outlet that's not properly centered between the trim and the, and the millwork face. Yeah. Drives me insane. I couldn't <laughs> walk by the thing without, it, 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 I mean, and this is how I think of my career. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, Oh God, I did that one wrong. Oh God, I did that one wrong. Oh God, I did that one wrong. And you know, people go like, it's a masterpiece. I'm like, I can tell you a thing or two about it. It's not a masterpiece. Right, right. <laughs> you know. Um, closing thought, I guess, and this is kind of interesting to me, just on that idea of imperfection and, and sort of embracing just being human, but also the contrast, I think, between you and, and some of your clients. 
you talked about the influence of hippies on you growing up. And, and yeah. the quote that I wrote down was, you had romantic dreams, not of yachts and fine cigars, but of frozen mountaintops, workshops filled with timeless tools, mornings in the slanted sun of the vegetable garden, and evenings strumming songs by the fire. Like, I just, I love the imagery of that. And um, you mentioned, I think, right after that passage, that that's the life that you're kind of starting to build for yourself now or, or have built for yourself at this point. Like, have you always been that way, I guess, of somebody that, that looks past the material? Or is that something that developed because of the work you do and just the the situations you were in? I mean, I think it's a lifelong thing. Both of my parents were successful, but I wouldn't describe either of them as materialistic. I mean, my mom was an accomplished doctor her entire career, but she drives a 20-year-old car yeah. that, that she's not even interested in having fixed. She thinks she's too close to death to worry about it. And uh <laughs> She should actually shouldn't be driving it at her age. Um, my father kind of poo-pooed material things. Uh-huh. And, and in a funny way, I, I mean, I, I don't feel the same way he does. He's, he's, my parents are, are children of the Depression. Yeah. They were children where it really did matter to not buy socks, right. new socks. You learn to darn socks. I mean, we're not talking about like, say, I get a new iPhone or something. Yeah. You, you can't have new socks. Right. And you're going to learn to darn socks as a child because we can't afford new socks for you. And that was a third of the country at the time. And they grew up in those conditions. And I grew up as the child of people who grew up in those conditions. I mean, I didn't, I say in the book, and it's not hyperbole, I didn't have my own pair of trousers until I was 10 years old. It was bought for me. Yeah, I wore hand-me-downs for my brother. And part of it was frugality, which my father is very adept at (laughs) but also to the point where he 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 has difficulty allowing himself the things that he actually can afford and would really like to do he's done some of it yeah but i mean quite frankly uh, having the book published was a windfall to me it was money i never thought i would have and didn't expect to have and it wasn't part of my budget and, and and i didn't need it and i have played guitar now since i was 12 yeah and I, I had enough money finally to buy like my dream guitar. And I only bought it three weeks ago. Yeah. And it's a 1940 D'Angelico style A. It's not even the fancy D'Angelico. It's the style A. It's a, it's a tuned down, a toned down version of it's like working man's D'Angelico. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a freaking D'Angelico. Yeah. I mean, I played it, I played it for a friend of mine the other day and he like wept. It was like, Oh my living God, whoever yeah. heard such a. Like there are material things that are fantastic. I mean, yeah. that's a handmade wooden object by a man who worked with a single apprentice in a shop in downtown New York. Yeah. He made that one at a time. And as a as a as a work of craft, it's miraculous. Yeah. Like, how do you make sound come out of wood and wire? I mean, right. I, that's impossible. And that and it's not, I mean, lots of people make sound, but that sound right. is impossible. But it's a material thing, and yeah. I'm damn glad I finally got one. I mean, I'm glad I own it. I don't have very many fancy things, and I don't – as what I described in the book, I want an electric truck, but I need to finish my solar array on my roof first. And uh, one of the things that you learn working for very rich people is that as much as they have everything and anything and anything they want at their fingertips, whatever a person owns is also a burden to them. So if you have 32 houses, you have to figure out how the hell to take care of 32 houses. If yeah. you have, and I've worked for a guy who had 32 houses, and and if you have 10 cars, 
You got to make sure the oils. I mean, to me, excess isn't something to aspire to. I don't need more than I need yeah. or more. And I have things that are special to me and I want them and they're a little fancier. And that's, but that's because those are things I especially love. I mean, guitars I played my whole life. It's kind of okay after 49 years to go like, okay, you've practiced every day for 49 years. You can have a good guitar. You know what I mean? (laughs) And there's still my dad in my head going like, well, that's an awful lot of money. So, you know what I mean? (laughs) First question he asked was like, do you have that insured? When I showed it to him last weekend. And, uh, and, uh, that's how he was brought up. Right. But the hippies influenced American culture in several ways. And it wasn't until the hippie movement that people looked at craft as a, as a, you know, people went back to craft in that period. And, and a lot of the older carpenters I worked for were previously hippies. Yeah. And they got turned on to craft. A lot of them had advanced degrees. I knew guys that had advanced degrees and PhDs and they, but they didn't want that life. They yeah. wanted to be a craftsperson and a carpenter and to use their hands and use their bodies and use their hearts and use their minds. They were trying to realize their potential. Mm. I mean, a lot of them went off the rails because they tried to realize their potential through taking away too many drugs and things like that. And yeah. that, eventually found out that didn't really work out. Right. But the thrust of that movement was to realize human potential. Yeah. And through everything, through sex, through, through drugs, when they did drugs, through free movement, free, you know, crazy hippie dancing, uh, free from trying to free up music, trying to free up art, trying to free up social mores, trying to relieve us of some of the things called laws that are really no more than rules that we we follow unnecessarily in our lives, you know, and uh, they were trying to stop that. And I admired that. I'm not a hippie. I wasn't, I'm not old enough, but I did admire those guys. And I did admire the particular ones I knew who I write about in the book. Yeah. And, and David Kirkham lived a beautiful life. I mean, when he died, he was adored. Yeah. Yeah. He had students that he taught how to do woodwork and craft, and he lived in Vinyl Haven, Maine, and he was adored. There was an outpouring of adoration for that man when he died. And he was an amateur musician, played in the band, made his own bass. I mean, wow, cool freaking dude. And he was a long-haired, motorcycle-riding, beaded jacket hippie. And I, you know, and I admired that. All right, Mark Ellison there. What a talk. I mean, I, I, the book was phenomenal, and I learned so much from it. And then just having Mark be the warm presence that he was and just smiling through all of it and telling these amazing stories and being the deep thinker that he was. Like, this was such a fun interview for me, and I'm glad you took the time to listen to it. I'm glad you made it here to the end, and uh, I appreciate it. Mark's book is Building a Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of Good Work. Go check that out wherever you buy your books. You will not be disappointed. I think it's a good read, and I hope you uh, enjoy it as well. If you're not already signed up for the Willoughby Hills newsletter, please do that today. I think you'd really enjoy that as well. I publish twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. And if you're on the newsletter list, you also get new episodes of the podcast emailed right to you, so you know when those come out. And if you want to upgrade to a paying membership, You even get podcast episodes before anybody else and some exclusive posts as well. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter to sign up for that today. And uh, yeah, 
I appreciate you hanging out today. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me over there. I'm less active on Twitter these days, but you know, it's the state of the world. And go check out Mark Ellison's book, man. It's a good read. Hope you enjoy it. Stay safe out there, everybody. 